Hi, friends. I have a special episode for you this week. I sat down with Valerie Homaker from Latter-day Struggles podcast, and we recorded a podcast together about the impact of the talk to the mothers in Zion by President Ezra Taft Benson and how it has shaped our development and our faith. So I hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back with our regular Ask Dr. Julie Hanks episodes next time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles and Ask Dr. Julie Hanks podcast. We're doing this together, Valerie and Julie. (laughs) So Valerie and I met uh, for dinner a couple of weeks ago. I reached out to her on Instagram and said, we need to be friends. We definitely need to get together when you're in Utah. And so we did. And one of the topics that came up was as we kind of shared our life story, was the commonality of this talk in the late 80s to the mothers in Zion and how it has shaped or how it shaped our journeys. Um, And so we thought it would be fun to get together and talk about it. So I'm looking forward to this, Valerie. I am too. And I have to say, one of the first things that I loved about you, Julie, was actually it was connected to this talk. So I'm going to actually tell everyone what the actual conversation was because it was kind of hilarious. So we're getting ready to, we're sitting down, getting ready to order. Something comes up. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but you said to me, (laughs) you said, I am just like, you got like this dreamy look in your eyes and you're like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, go ahead. You said, I'm just so incredibly grateful. I did not follow the prophet. (laughs) Yeah. In that instance, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh. Yeah. I forgot. I first thought this is such an interesting, I can't wait to hear what she's about ready to say next. So I said, well, what do you mean? And then the thing that's cool, which I think is why we're going to have a fun conversation today, Julie, is because you said, I didn't follow the prophet in the moment that I felt that we were instructed to stay at home. And so you were actually, I think, referencing this -hmm. very talk. And I said to you, isn't that interesting? Because guess what, Julie? I did follow the prophet and it has, it has been in that particular moment, you chose one path and I chose one path. And our conversation from that moment on became like, well, tell me what, why did you feel like you had the agency to do what you did? And why did I feel like I didn't have the agency to do what I did? And then we kind of talked about like our earlier lives and like what informed how each of us developed. And anyways, I think that's why this is going to be a fun conversation because it's not even like we have the same experiences. No, no, not at all. Which I think makes it interesting, right? Yeah. We kind of took the same, uh, the same talk and did some, did something different. And then, but we kind of ended up in the same place in, you know, middle age. Right. Yeah. So fun. Okay. Where do you want to start? Well, I wonder, I think for me, I think it would be fun for the the audience, our audiences to actually hear a little bit more about that very thing, which is what mm. was it that gave you the confidence? Maybe you could say like each of us, let's just say kind of like where we were, I believe it was 1987. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were each of us and what were we doing in life and kind of what were the surrounding events that I think informed uh, our choices? Because I do think it matters. I think kind of the way we experienced the world and the safety we had, and maybe even some of our like 
our culture, family of origin, and things like that inform how we orient ourselves towards something like a mandate from the prophet. So go ahead and share yours and maybe then I'll share mine. Yeah. So I believe it was in February. So the beginning of 1987, I was just entering the last half of my senior year of high school. I had been accepted to Brigham Young University. I was actually living with my grandparents because my parents had moved to Utah, moved my family to Utah the summer before my senior year. So I was living fairly independently. Uh, They weren't supervising me closely. I was also in intensive therapy. Mm. And I think I had spent, well, I started therapy when I was 14 and I went on and off for a couple different, you know, eating disorder and depression and just perfectionism, um, (laughs) you know, common teen Mormon diagnoses, I think. That's right. Um, so I, I really think therapy helped me develop this little, I mean, it's still very tiny, but this little bud of a sense of self. And I I think that allowed me to interpret this talk differently. And I also really felt called in certain directions. I felt called with my music. I had already started writing songs and recording and in my senior year. And so I kind of had these things in motion and one, I was accepted to college and, and I felt like that's what God wanted me to do. And so to have the prophet say this thing, like, no, this is what you should do Like good women stay home, raise their, have a lot of children young. They have them young, get married young, lots of kids, stay full-time parenthood. And I kind of just was like, I, I either have to go with personal revelation or with prophetic counsel. And I, I decided to go with personal revelation. And I remember thinking, the prophet is not going to have to answer for my life. I'm going to have to answer for my life at the end of it. And I'm quite amazed that I was thinking that as a, an 18 year old, but I was, and I, I think in that moment I claimed um, my personal authority over like, this is my life. And uh, ultimately, I'm responsible. And I think that was kind of a turning point in in my life. Now, this talk, even though I chose to pursue careers, and I have not been a full-time stay-at-home mother, it also, I did get married young at 20. I had a baby at 21. So I kind of like did did the things in the talk, and I did my own thing. So it's like, which created its own stress. And then this talk also created a lot of shame because there was this part of me that always wondered, am I, is it okay for me to want so much for myself? Is that selfish? Are my kids going to struggle? Am I going to get divorced because I work? Am I, you know, all these, yeah, these questions and And so even though I kind of claimed my choices, my emotions 
took decades to kind of catch up and um, to kind of go, no, it's really okay. Like you were made this way with these desires and you are good. Wow. And I, I still work on that as, you know, in my, I worked on it into my forties. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. And I'm just so proud of you. My goodness. I, like as a, as a peer and a colleague now, I'm like, that is so brave of a little 18 year old. <laughs> Thank to, you. Right. I mean, to have that kind of self-confidence and I'm really struck by what you said a second ago, which is like you stepped into your power, but then it took years for you. It's like, it's like you stepped into some of your power, but there's still that little Mormon girl in there. That's like, I feel bad. I feel guilty. I'm doing something wrong. And so Mm -hmm. it was like the tension between the two that still held you hostage, even though you were doing some pretty brave, powerful things in your actual, like as your life unfolded. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'm getting really emotional. I think, um, like being that prey was really scary and really hard. And I carried a lot of um, shame and confusion about, you know, like, am I really okay? Yeah. Am I just, um, you know, not, (laughs) am I sinning by living the life that I want to live? And yeah, I, so thank you. I I have a lot of respect for her too. Um, And I also remember how scared she was, you know? Yeah. Precocious. I mean, I think about, I think about my story and I think, oh, you were decades in front of me. (laughs) So I think it's great. (laughs) I don't think it's in front. I I just think, you know, that's just where I was at the time. And and we kind of, everybody has their own, their own path. But, and I think part of my emotionality is that I just didn't have anyone to model the kind of life that I envisioned for myself. And so it was so lonely and scary to try and create something that I didn't even know if it could exist in the first place. Having no models, no mentors, and an institution that's communicating to you that there is something fundamentally wrong with the desires of your heart. It's almost like you had like multiple things coming at you to instill in you a sense of not okayness. And so of yeah. course you felt tons of angst and shame and insecurity, even in the face of doing what you felt was right. I mean, it sounds like you, I mean, had to battle all of this programming that had yeah. been layered upon you, even though you, in a flash of, you know, brilliance and bravery, you did the right thing, but it doesn't feel like you like rode for free on this at all. Oh, not at all. Like yeah, there was lots of, lots of, questioning and and suffering and it just it makes me so angry yeah and it makes me so um and I'm angry on behalf of a lot of other women that I've worked with through the years as a therapist who who did not have the resources that I had at the age I had and I totally recognize my privilege in that that I had parents that could afford to send me to therapy and were open to that. And, you know, but I'm just so angry because so many women made a choice based on an external voice instead of their own. And it just, that just should like, that just shouldn't happen. Right. Right. That's my story actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well share yours. I'm thinking about 
like there, I didn't know some of the things that you shared. These are the, I'm hearing the first time some of your beautiful youth story. And I do think there is something there about the ability, like the fact that you were actually in therapy to me feels like it informs a lot of your spiritual maturity at that young age of 18, that you had already begun a journey of self-discovery that you had begun, you'd, you'd suffered enough through your own beautiful little life to be willing to look at what is going inside of me. And I didn't have anything like that. Um, it was years before I went to my first therapist and not to say I shouldn't have been to one. <laughs> I'm sure I should have, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think for myself, I came from a multi-generational Mormon family and in my teenage years and early twenties, my parents' marriage was falling apart. Mm. And I feel like I'm just putting this narrative together as the years have gone by all these years later. I don't think I had the emotional bandwidth to be curious about my own spiritual standing, mm. meaning that the church to me was security. And I was not in a position, I don't think because of my own like level of maturity, I didn't, I didn't ask any questions. I was actually, I think, content at that point in time to allow an external authority to tell me what to do with my life. Now, the thing that's interesting is I've been thinking about this talk as you and I've been planning it together. I planning talking together. It occurred to me that I, I did actually have hopes and dreams. Like I wanted to mm. have a career. I wanted to do something special. And I was about 13 years old in 1987. Mm. And my, as I piece together the memories, I don't specifically remember how it all evolved and changed, but I definitely remember thinking, oh, you're not supposed to have those hopes and dreams. Like, that's bad. That's not okay. Even in the talk, he mentions that it's selfish for a woman to have aspirations and dreams and hopes for her own sake. Yeah. And so I remember thinking that I will go to college and I'll do all of those things because that's kind of what Yet what we do, but we don't do it in the service of like becoming anything other than a mother. Like, and so for me, I'm really, it's very weird because it doesn't feel like it relates closely to who I see myself as now, but back then, and for the better part of my twenties and even into my early thirties, even though full-time motherhood distinctively did not fit me well, it was incredibly mm. challenging for me to do this, it didn't feel like, I mean, it's very strange as I even re reflect, I didn't feel like I had a choice. The choice yeah. was not mine. The choice was the profits. The choice it was, was made. It, it was, was already made. made. Yes. And I was, my responsibility was to be obedient to that choice. And my crisis point came when my youngest was a toddler and I was thinking, well, I guess I better get pregnant again because I don't have any really, I mean, I didn't put this into words at the time, but it was kind of yeah. like, well, this is what I do. I have babies and I am a mom and I don't even know what I would do. It, so many years had passed by that I had really just sacrificed my own identity for God or what I was thinking was God, of course. But, yeah. and, and so anyways, I, I did have an experience where I was exposed to a therapist and what they did and the idea like awoke in me, like you could do that. Mm. And it, it mm. like spiraled me into a huge crisis because how dare I have a desire of my own mm. 
And mm. what would that mean for my children? And what would that mean for my marriage? And I mean, he says here in the talk that women that work cause divorces. That is our fault if we develop ourselves and women that are social. Those are the women that cause the downfall of these families. And so I, I was completely paralyzed to become more fully myself. And I didn't realize until I read the talk this morning again, actually, how much I had integrated the teachings of this horrible document into my actual psyche and how many years it has taken me. And I think it's like, I'm like you, you said a second ago, I still, I still, there are words in this document, phrases that I didn't realize were in there that were part, that have become part of my like the manuscript at my my shame tape in my head that comes from to the mothers of Zion by Ezra Taft Benson, and it's still things. It's I still am working on it. I'm curious, how did you decide to be? How and when did you decide to become a therapist? Yeah, like I, you had this crisis, and then and then what? Yeah, I. So I went slowly and. I mean, a lot of it, honestly, was my husband's support. My husband, mm. actually, who didn't know he was a feminist at the time, because <laughs> we, you know, <laughs> but he he was someone that was like, I I don't really think we should have any more kids, and I was kind of like, but that's what I do, like that's who I am. And he was like, I this isn't no, like, <laughs> not to say I didn't enjoy motherhood because I do, but he could tell it was an ill fitting outfit from the gate as far as like stay at home motherhood, and I think it was not working for him either. <laughs> He's like, no, no more kids. You're <laughs> and so when this thing emerged, he's like, I think you should do it. I think for him, as much as anything, it was, it was like, he saw my soul wilting and he could tell that this was not right. And, and he was actually, we were both pretty orthodox at the time back yeah. then in those, in when this was going on, we were still all in. And yet for one of the first times in our lives, I think collectively together, we were like, this is not working. Like the map does not match the terrain anymore. This is not right for you, Valerie. Yeah. And kind of like, I don't know that I necessarily care what any anyone from the outside says, which for us was pretty radical because we yeah. were very rule following, but it was so painful for me to be doing that, which felt categorically like it wasn't my nature, not to say again, I'm trying to be very careful because it wasn't that I didn't love my children. And I know you love right. your children, Julie. I adore them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's more to me about, and I think that's what this talk, the the damage in this talk for me is it's not as much as it's it, it's not about motherhood. It's about autonomy and agency, agency and control. Yes. And fear and yes. compliance. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's really not a at at all about motherhood. No. Right. Like, and motherhood is amazing. And yes. it's a choice. It's a choice. And it's yes. one of many. So I, I don't know. Have you seen my TED my TED talk, The Cost of Idealizing Motherhood? Oh, well, we'll have to we'll have to link to it. Okay. But I, I talk a lot about um kind of the history of the idealization of motherhood. Yeah. And I think and what I I think now about this talk is that it's his attempt to value motherhood and nurturing and caregiving yeah. in a society that seemed to not value that, 
but by idealizing something, you make, you know, you paint it as better than reality. And then it becomes ranked above other things. Yes. So to value something is to consider it important. To idealize is to paint a picture that's better than reality. Wow. And to put it above other things. And so in this talk, President Benson puts motherhood above any other things, which is a hierarchical ladder kind of model instead of a connection model. And I really like I, I've tried to think, OK, like what is what is he? He's trying to say that children need parents. That's what I'm going to take from this. Like, And I remember thinking early on, like, OK, I'm going to take that the kids need their parents. Sure. Right. But it it kind of came through this lens of his experience and generation and and all of these things. And instead of just saying we need to value caregiving and taking care of each other and taking care of our families, it came in as this like ah, guilt and shame and direction and kind of ranking it you know, above other activities. And I just don't think we need to do that in order to value it. Well, what you're describing to me, I'm having like a, a bunch of thoughts come to my mind. Number one is that I feel like in institutional religion, lower lower stage spirituality, we are just consumed with ranking things. We want to rank everything because we got to figure out who's in and who's out. And the irony that I find in what you were just describing is that while we rank women as like the most sacred and holy, you know, calling in the world, even in the talk itself, it actually sort of even puts women above men, which I think we know is a placating stance for a patriarchal institution, right? right. Like it's we, like we value you. Well, if you did, you wouldn't have to say it. You right. would just do it. <laughs> right. And so they they already have all of the actual power and there's an institutional prejudice going on or an oppression going on with this gender. The the power that he uses is tricky because in listening to him, it's like, you're so wonderful and you're so special, but there is a rank order amongst women. So the non-mothers are a little less than the mothers, but also by default, because we're the men giving you the rank that you're better than us by default, we're actually better than you because we have the power to name you. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that is one of the problems with having primarily men speaking to men and women. Yes. Right. Is that I'm, I'm so tired of hearing from men how valuable motherhood is or what my highest calling is, because I can actually define that for myself. Like I don't, you know, you don't get to do that for me. You don't get to say what my highest calling is. That's for me to decide. And so when you have men defining what is most important to women, it just, that dynamic is, is patriarchal and hierarchical. I was, that, that was actually my number one takeaway as I was studying for our conversation today. I'm reading this talk this morning and I'm thinking, he is the expert on womanhood. He's telling us who we are, what we want, what we desire, what we ought to desire, what's wrong with us if we don't desire it, and right? all of the fear mongering around what happens if we don't do this. And I even down to the last of the talk talks about, I think it was like the 10 points 
of how to be a good mother. I mean, I read that this morning and I was kind of like, not only disgusted, but kind of insulted because it's like, if we're as noble and wonderful and exalted as you claim we are, why in the world are you a non-woman, a non-mother telling me of the 10 most valuable ways to spend time with my children? I mean, from, from my perspective now at this remove, I'm thinking, this is just offensive. It is, it's actually really putting women in a very like infant infantilizing the role of a mother. Like not only do you not know yourselves, what you want, what you need, or what is the outcome of your bad choices, but we're going to actually tell you how to do the thing. If we get, if we can get you to comply in the first place. I mean, I looked at this and I was like, this is so incredibly damaging to those of us women and it sounds like whether it be, you know, you who went ahead and did what was right or me that complied, all of us were wounded by it. Every one of us, it it we it was internalized. And I think probably part of it is because I noticed that somewhere where I was studying it, it said they turned this into a pamphlet. I mean, so my sense yeah. is and we it's were quoted in, in manuals and yes. these these quotes are are still present in some yes. some of the manuals it's it's such a um it's such a painful like i just have so much empathy for us and for other women who have been trying to navigate this and the the feelings that come with either choice right it it's like whatever you chose in response to this talk it was painful and not fully celebrated it, yeah. either because I was going against it or you were complying, right? Like, so it really wasn't a choice. It's heartbreaking, Julie, because you had the courage to step into your power, even as a timid little 18-year-old kid, but you still suffered like the internal experience of being not enough in a church that had expectations for you that you were not meeting. And then of course I did the right thing and I still felt bad <laughs> because the right thing for me was draining my soul of my unrealized potential. Yeah. And so I, I think in some ways, I don't know how in this system, I, I would be interested to know what, if, if there are women that not only stepped into their power, but had the ego structure to be able to truly own it. Because what I sense and what I experience, and I know you and I both work with a lot of Latter-day Saint tradition people, is we're now stepping into our power in our later years, but we're having to manage a lot of shame and a lot of resentment and a lot of regret. And another kind of side aspect to this that I think is maybe something you and I can spend a second talking about is so many women were compliant and they didn't get an education. Mm -hmm. They didn't be, grow up on their own, right? They, they mm -hmm. immediately kind of became folded into a system with a partner, with children, very psychologically, spiritually, academically, emotionally underdeveloped in many ways, and then became instantaneously dependent. And then life happens and crisis sometimes happens. And these poor women are incredibly vulnerable, vulnerable. Mm -hmm. to the world. And we see this yeah. all of the time. It is a true crisis and a tragedy amongst our, our fellow women that, that are experiencers of this talk in similar ways that we are. Yeah. I've seen that. I've seen that throughout my practice and I've, I've seen, um, even in situations where 
people where women weren't left financially vulnerable, they're emotionally and personally under like underdeveloped. Like I haven't, I can't even tell you what I want for myself. Yes. Because I have not asked myself for 25 years and what a, yeah, wasted that wasted potential. Not, and I don't think motherhood is a waste. I, I think you can do motherhood and other things if that's what you want. And I just want to be clear. I fully support people who choose to be full-time caregivers. I think that is a wonderful choice. And I think it should be a choice. Exactly. Not, not a, this is your only option. Well, and I think that what I actually hear from so many women that I talk to and even their partners is that it's not that they necessarily regret having created a family together, but what they do regret is that in some cases they felt as if they did it under duress. Like we have to do this thing. (laughs) We have to do it quickly and soon and often. (laughs) And so so, again, and I think some people may push back and say, no, you don't have to do anything. You, you too chose to do that. I get that, you know, on an, on occasion from people that are not open to the reality of how big this is. And to that, my response is, I mean, it's complicated because when you are folded into a system and plugged into an ideology that makes big promises and you want to be compliant and you are young and you are by default and underdeveloped, it is very like there's a high likelihood that you are going to be compliant to the system that you have a parent-child relationship with. If the church tells Mm -hmm. you this is how you stay good with God, especially in those, and I think this is why this is especially really painful is because in those early twenties, we are young, we're developmentally still, quite frankly, we're kids. And so for us to really buy in and do all of the things because we're trying to just be obedient and compliant, I mean, it's a, it's a setup and it makes it so that I think many, many, many of us look back and go, I don't regret that I have these beautiful children. And also I feel deep and profound sadness that I didn't feel as if this was a choice that I made for myself or we as a partnership made. We did what we thought we had to do or were supposed to do or should do. And I have to say, I was actually documenting in this talk as I was reading this morning, the number of times he says, you should do this and need to do this. And I mean, like these Mm. were mandates. There was no confidence in the human being to evolve and develop and do what is best for them in this talk. It was absolutely you do this to be okay with God. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think, again, I think that's why so many of us in our, you know, forties or fifties or beyond, it's like, Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that I was so shortchanging myself of my own voice, my own potential, my own ability to, to craft a life in a way that was satisfying for my own potential, be it motherhood, fatherhood and career and other things. Like we just, like, we didn't even know what we didn't know at the time. And so we wake up to this and then it's the grief and it's the, the, the regret. And sometimes it's the anger and the frustration that like, how come the system didn't trust me enough as a child of God to have the capacity to craft my own destiny? Yeah. I think that's where the pain comes in for a lot of us. Yeah. If we're so righteous and so good, 
why why can't we be trusted and and that is what i've come to is i've just decided my desires are good and so i i'm going to just trust those if i have a desire it's it's good because i'm good instead of if i have a desire it must be selfish and the natural man and it's like you know what my heart is good so why why can't i trust my desires i think that's a process that is so important for each of us to to walk ourselves through and i think sometimes these spiritual awakenings and these the faith crisis that i think is sometimes a, a piece of our awakening yeah. when we as women or partners of women go oh my goodness I gave away my authority. I gave away my ability to choose. I gave away my my knowledge that I am infinitely good and lovable. And therefore, whatever unfolds is a part of my journey. And if I choose it, I get to own it. Right. And we don't, again, I think that's that's a whole, like, it's a reorientation with life, with God, with our potential and our purpose, which is that like, Whatever we choose as individuals, once we seize that authority and take it back for ourselves, we all of a sudden have all of this power that I think for many of us, for most of our lives, we didn't even know was available to us. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Let, can we talk a little bit about numbers of children? Because oh. that was a very um, complicated thing for me. Uh, we were married by a general authority. And when we met with him before we got married, okay. And I was just barely 20. He said, do not delay having children or you will suffer the consequences. Wow. That's pretty dramatic. And then I, as I'm reading this talk, it kind of says, you know, have a quiver full of children and have have them early and have many of them and there's that pressure right or you will pay i mean that that's like that's so fear-based like i just feel so sad for my my younger self that has these people in authority saying these scary things about my life choices it's it's remarkable to me how fear-based this address is, especially because what I've come to know and like really feel to the core of my soul is that like God is love and God is compassion and God is trust. And we struggle, I think. I, I, I'm just coming to this right now as you and I talk, Julie. It feels in some ways like we were both very receptive to this fear dynamic because yeah. perhaps this is the nature of how we were taught, which is a transactional relationship with God that probably encompassed more than just motherhood and family creation. But it seems as if you and I both uh, absorbed this into our psyches because I am the same way. I remembered feeling, and this is interesting, it was sort of absorbed in the culture because I don't really remember anybody telling me you have to have a lot of children but I also, like you, did not have a single female model or mentor of someone who was doing anything other than that. It was lots of children. It was early. It was a stay-at-home mom. And I even remember culturally where I was raised, if there was the few, you know, a, a woman here or there that was working outside of the home, uh, that was distinctively 
not looked upon kindly. Like mm-hmm. they're and, poor children. Yes. I mean, very much a sense of like, oh, well, and or like, well, it's going to be OK, perhaps because of, you know, his income is low or there's sickness or there's this. But it was never, ever a celebration of the development of this woman or a way that a family is collaboratively working together to raise a beautiful family between woman and man and children. It's lots of children early. And then one other kind of side note that I want to just mention that you brought up as you were talking about the quiverful, which is very shiny, happy people, by the way, that's very much Mm -hmm. a a big piece of that documentary that I just watched. But, um, but this idea that like, once again, we have no autonomy. There's no trust in us as individuals, as couples, as, as growing families. What the, what I I listened as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself from the institutional perspective, it's a one size fits all. There's no accounting for age or interest or uh, desires or temperament or talents or other mental health. Exactly. Like there's, and there's like a myriad, we just named five or six and there's probably, you know, many, many, many more that we're not, and there's no accounting for the depth and breadth and the complexity of every human being. And then multiply that by a couple, which then gets even more complicated. And so it's like, we bought into this and didn't even have the psychological maturity at the time to be like, that can't be right. Yeah. Every family, every couple can't be a good fit for multiple children early. Right. And, and so it's just, it's remarkable to me from my remove now as a grown woman going, I was so naive that it didn't feel, I don't know, I guess I can't really know. But to me, it seems strange that anyone would, would take that seriously because right. it seems right. so incredibly like untenable to even believe that everyone would fit into the same box. Like it's crazy. Right. <laughs> in in our family, we had two children. Um, I while I was in school, and then another well, one in undergrad, one in grad school. I graduated right after my parents divorced, hmm. and I was honestly like, you know what? Maybe two kids, maybe that's it. And I remember there were some people in my ward who had one or two children and I would go and talk to them like, okay, tell me what, what may, tell me about your decision. And like it, because I'm from a family of nine. And so I'm just curious why people make the decisions. And I think I was kind of looking for permission to, to like, is it, is it okay? Like, what if I stopped? And I remember feeling so much pressure to have more children. And I was in a personal crisis my, my extended family was in crisis. My marriage was in crisis and it was not the right time to have more children. Right. And, and I remember thinking like, I, I think I, I think we should have more children when we want to like, what, like, whoa, what a novel thought. Exactly. That's so revolutionary. (laughs) When, and if we want to, and you know, when it sounds fun and it doesn't sound fun right now, it just really doesn't. And so we have our two children, they're three years apart. And then we waited nine years and we decided like, yeah, let's, let's have another one. And so we had another one and then we had another one. So we kind of have two families of two. And um, it, it was kind of funny because after so after nine years, people just assumed we were done. And then everybody was so surprised, like, oh, you're having more. 
Um, so we kind of didn't follow the, you know, have them every two years, have have them young. Have I mean, We did have them young, but then we kind of spread them out. Now we're old parents too. So, but I remember that, that social pressure and the turmoil that I felt like, should I, is it okay to not have more? Is it, can I even choose that? Is, does that mean I'm a bad person? And so that this talk and many, you know, and that was taught a lot at that time in the seventies and eighties, don't put off having children, have a lot of children. And can we talk for a second about in, in this talk to the mothers in Zion about the fear of spirits going to wicked families outside of the church? Oh my goodness. Okay. Let me read this. Um, Yeah. He's quoting Brigham Young. Brigham Young emphasized there are multitudes of pure and holy spirits waiting to take tabernacles. Now, what is our duty? To prepare tabernacles for them, to take a course that will not tend to drive those spirits into the families of the wicked, where they will be trained in wickedness, debauchery, and every species of crime. It is a duty of every righteous man and woman to prepare tabernacles for all the spirits they can. Just the us and them uh, frame of that, like we're righteous, you're all criminals. You it's know? terrible. We're wicked criminals. It's it's like, it, well, yeah. what, are, what about all the other amazing families that spirits can go to on this? You know, <laughs> I, I'm glad you actually brought this up because I, it was hard to, speaking of ranking, it was hard to rank what was most disturbing about this talk, yeah. but this is, this is up there and I was shocked as I was studying this that that idea was one of the main things that has informed or did inform my childbearing choices. I am disgusted to report. <laughs> like it's like like I don't want them to go to wicked families. Right. Like it's like that was something that was integrated into my little brain, my little Mormon yeah. spiritually exceptional brain that we are. I mean, I think the I want to like scoot back a little bit and like, let's put this in bigger context. Not only is this relevant to parenting and to choosing to have lots of children to save them from Babylon, right? But mm-hmm. the whole philosophy that we as Latter-day Saints are in fact more spiritual, more holy, more chosen, more beloved, and it's our responsibility. And we have the truth. Exactly. Right. We have the truth. And so we have this big burden and responsibility to bring everyone in, not only everybody that's living in to our faith, but everyone who hasn't been born yet, we've got to actually conceive them to skip a step so we don't have to do the missionary work for them, right? And so, I mean, that to me was another moment in my study, and I mentioned this to you before we started recording, I had no idea how Mm. much this talk informed my own psyche around all of the shame and struggles I have felt with the obligation to parent and parent many children and to be not only like a mom of many, but a mom of many who does certain things and doesn't do other things. And this was, again, one of those moments where it's like, oh, that's kind of Mm. gross that like we are so much better than everyone else that children can't even be trusted to other grown-ups throughout time and space, which again, from where I sit now, it's like, what in the, that is insane. I mean, God has given beauty and goodness to so many beautiful human beings throughout 
time and throughout yeah. history and all religions or no religion. And I believe that to my core now. And so I'm looking at this going, oh, how, how not only misinformed it was, but it mm-hmm. also is, is, is planting in us this huge burden for women, this responsibility to yeah. provide for, protect, take care of. And in so doing, it's also really setting us up in this sort of me against them dynamic. Mm-hmm. And the me, I it's a hierarchical dynamic of I am more spiritual, therefore I have this responsibility to bear more children. I mean, I'm also thinking if you flip that, what if you you have children and they choose wickedness, debauchery, and crime? Yeah. Like you have failed. Right. <laughs> like you have let down not only God, but those children, those spirits, those, right? You failed in your role. And a I know a lot of people who have committed crimes who are from nice, happy LDS families, right? It's, yeah. It's so it's kind of like the us and them, and oh, that w- that won't happen. That doesn't happen in our part of the world, you right? Know? Well, and he actually mentions many, many times this concept of the world. We are the people of God, and this is the world, right? The world does this, and the world's women goes to the typewriter, and the world's people, and and we are different, better, superior. And I think that's like, it's probably a topic for a whole other podcast episode, which is like, as our children evolve and, and individuate from us and become beautifully themselves, this paradigm that President Benson introduces puts an enormous amount of responsibility for the ego of the parent on the success of the child that you, I'm only as successful as, as you being on the covenant path for forever and ever. And if you don't do those things, then I am a failure. Even if I completely sacrifice my entire identity and my whole life for you, (laughs) it's like such a setup. Well, yeah, especially if I've sacrificed my whole life, you better turn out and make my life give my life value, right? So there's this enmeshment where parents need their children to take care of them, their emotional needs, their self-worth by quote, turning out good, you know? Yeah. And I've seen that so often in my practice, women who are like, what is my life for? All of my six kids have left the church. I'm, I'm a failure. My life has been a waste. And it's like, wow. There's there's two things going on there that I think are super important. Number one is that it's how the child turns out is a reflection of my worth. But they come by that honestly when they sit in your office and my office because they are they've children, been told that they are children of this talk. And then I think the second piece that plays into this very dynamic is that because I am such a all the things he says, I gotta look at the words because it's we are. There's no more noble work. It's the noblest calling. A mother's role is God ordained. So all of this like really superlative, like importance placed upon a woman to the extent that she foregoes all of her or much of the rest of her development of her life, pours all of this into her beloved children. And then when they have the audacity to grow up and get lives of their own, these women are left desolate because they have nothing else. And oftentimes they actually put the burden on their growing up children to not grow up. And they stay in this really, again, enmeshed codependency sort of thing Mm -hmm. where sometimes children don't even feel like they can grow up and move into a more autonomous adult to adult relationship with their parents because my mom needs me so that she need her. 
Exactly. So <laughs> she feels like she has an identity because her only identity is to be my mom. And so not only is this da- dangerous and damaging to the to the women and their partners because everybody stays underdeveloped, but it actually, ironically enough, it actually hurts our children. Oh, I, I have seen that. And and a lot of what I talk about on on social media has to do with that. Like you're not responsible for your parents' feelings and yep. it's okay to set boundaries and it's okay. You know, because it's it's such a common theme that that I've seen throughout my my work. Another thing that that comes to mind that we haven't covered yet um, is he says he's quoting President Kimball and says too many mothers work away from the home to furnish sweaters and music lessons and trips and fun for their children. Too many women spend their time socializing in politicking in public service when they should be home to teach and train and receive and love their children into security. That, that is such a privileged statement. Yeah. Too many mothers work because they're paying the bills and trying to feed their families. Yeah. Right. Like this is women work to provide for their families. Well, and I actually found it incredibly ironic that even the examples he uses, too many mothers work away from home to furnish. Okay, clothing, <laughs> that's a necessity, right? Right. right. <laughs> well, sweaters, <laughs> expensive sweaters, we mean. <laughs> okay. And then and then music lessons. And I thought, again, I was just chuckling and kind of scratching my head that like, once what's again- What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? And the the- the woman who, again, is able to collaborate if she is, again, privileged enough to even have an, a partner, right? But even to be able to collaborate, to provide fun for their children, that is the that is the exact opposite of unhealthy. That's called healthy for a woman right. to be able to help provide for a beautiful life for their children. I'm not here to say that the only beautiful life is had by nice vacations. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm also saying healthy, thriving grownups yeah, they collaborate in creating a family and a life with their children and they go have fun with their children. What he's saying here isn't even psychologically healthy counsel. And I was really taken, um, I took issue, gosh, I took issue with so much, Julie, yeah. but 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 women that spend their time socializing. I mean- Politicking, public <sighs> surface. And we wonder why Utah is underrepresented in terms of women in politics and in business and right? Of it, course. This is, this is the roots. Well, right I think- here. I think Utah is number 50 in Oh, the, we're we're the last in yes. in gender equality. Yes. And mm-hmm. and and I would I would suspect that once again the effectiveness of this talk and the insidiousness of how much this address informed more than a generation of families, women and men, it's had a huge effect on the health of, of the state of Utah and of people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are trying desperately to figure out what is it that, uh, why am I struggling so much? Why is it? And I think, you know, the, the population of women around our age, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, we were raised on this to believe that this was normal, that there was, in fact, something very, very wrong you know, I, I'm going to make it a confession here, Julie. I, I have a, a good friend who 10 years ago maybe had little children and decided to go back and get her PhD. And I, this was mm-hmm. not very long ago. And I remember like back the, the programming in my mind going, oh, those poor kids, 
How is this going to work? Like, and how can she be? And I mean, and I'm thinking to myself, the programming and the way our brains have been molded around this kind of cultural interpretation of what it means to be enough. It's really deep and it's really insidious. And I think even though sometimes I think we think we're more, you know, we have awoken in many ways, it seems like it kind of, kind of, it, it creeps back in. I mean, I, again, I think of words let me just run over to one of these 10 ways to spend time with children that, that he was kind enough to you know walk us through how <laughs> to be with our children, right? Be at the crossroads. I'm, I'm sorry to say that although there's a part of me that I think that's a beautiful counsel, again, if it's chosen and if it's part of one's own you know ability and to be in the rhythms, to be in the crossroads with their children. But I don't, what I internalized from that was incredibly guilt and shame inducing, which was every mm. time Valerie has something going on and and she can't be home for whatever reason after the children come in from school or whatever i am i am ruining or compromising my children's capacity to love me to be accomplished human beings to feel mm-hmm. worth and value. i mean i put so much pressure on myself because of this statement be at the crossroads and i'm 100% mm-hmm. sure this is because of this talk um, so much so that I I notice that I have internalized a lot of guilt and shame around my not enoughness simply because in my, you know, especially as my children were growing up a little bit, yeah, I started having a life. I started going out and doing things that actually crossed the 330 hour and I wouldn't be home. And kind of like what you were describing about yourself in your early choices, I did it. I would go out and I would be doing something else, but I always carried this huge burden of Valerie, you kind of suck as a mom. Like you shouldn't Mm. be doing this. Like if you were a good mom, you would be home every day at the crossroads because that's what President Benson said was like the guaranteed way to protect your children from, you know, the the world. Uh, As you're talking, I'm seeing this, this tendency to, to put personhood, selfhood and motherhood as like either or. Yes. Right. You can either have a self, which is selfish, right, or be a mom. <laughs> yeah. And that is just such a black and white, immature frame in terms of human development, right? We're so many things. We're, yeah. we are a person and, you know, you can be at the crossroads and you can also be at the tennis court or you can be at work or you can be, you know, right. Right. It, you, it's just like, one or the other, you pick, you're either selfish or you're a mom. You either. And I think it's fascinating to me that not only as much of this council, it's not even neutral. Like what they said is actually harmful. harmful. Yeah, It's harmful yeah. because if you think about the, this, this, I love that, what you just described here, like sort of the, the dichotomy, like you can be a self, a selfish self, <laughs> or you can be a mother. Right. And that's, I think, at least I can't speak for the crowd, but that's how I internalized much of what I read here and clearly internalized it in my in my developmental years and beyond. And yet at the same time, what's harmful about that is what we're teaching our children, especially our female children, is that there's something wrong with them having a self. And the healthy thing that we can teach our male and our female children at, because they're going to grow up and somehow be in relationship with adult women, right, is that the most healthy and adaptive thing we can model for them is how we are here in this life to become beautifully developed ourselves. And so when children see 
an underdeveloped mother who has no friends, who is not socializing, who is always there for them. What you're, what we're teaching our children is that motherhood and adulthood uh, isn't all that awesome because it looks a lot like underdevelopment. They may not have the words to conceptualize mm-hmm. that, but that's actually what they're seeing. As a matter of fact, in his last little, at the very end of the talk, I was very struck by, there was a little tribute that he read and I don't know. Oh, it was a son to his mother. And basically in essence, I'll just paraphrase it. What this tribute was is that I don't really remember. You're going to find the comedy in this, Julie. So (laughs) I don't really remember anything that my mom thought about or what she believed or what she did or who she was. I just remember that she loved me. And I'm looking at this going, I can't believe this is your illustration of righteous motherhood. It's a child self. And it's like, not only did this testimonial or this tribute communicate, I knew essentially nothing about my mother, whether she had it and I didn't see it or she didn't have ideas, thoughts, feelings, desires, passions, interests. I mean, that's kind of what I think he was communicating because I think this is how he's crowning his talk, which is the only thing that matters to a child is the love of a mother. And the thing that I find so tragic about that is First of all, well, two things. Number one is this is teaching a model that women and mothers are only for others, right? They're you are only- there to love me exactly. instead of to have to be in relationship with Exactly. Yeah. Motherhood is a relationship. It's like, it's a relationship. It's not a, this description of like things you should do or. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so he's basically saying, I, I don't know you. I have no clue, but. You are in the service of my development, mother. Thank you for that. And then on the and then the on the second piece that is disturbing to me is that not only do you not have a self, there's something virtuous about not developing yourself. And so we're modeling to our children. And the son may be looking for a wife down the road, you know, that is a woman who doesn't develop herself, does not have interests, passions, desires. And that is a noble woman. I mean, I might be over, like, mm-hmm. maybe I'm blowing this out of proportion, but to me, it was problematic because I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what he's communicating is incredibly not, it's not neutral. This is, this is harmful to the development of even a younger person looking on to see what healthy womanhood even is as they yeah. evolve into their later lives and their own relationships, whether it be your relationship with yourself as a woman or your relationship with someone in your future intimate life. It is a terrible model for spiritual development, psychological development, relational development. It is a terrible model on every level. Yeah. It's a terrible model for mothers. Like that's, that makes a a very shallow, hollow mother even, right? Right. Right. (laughs) I, I recall, I was probably in my late teens or early twenties, thinking like, I, I, I've got to figure this out. I've got to figure out how to become an, an adult Latter-day Saint woman that when my daughters see me, they're excited to grow up Wow! because I was not excited to grow up looking around me. I was like, I do know this is not for me. (laughs) And, And so that's, pretty much been my goal. Like I've got to figure this out for my daughters because I don't want them to go, oh, I don't want to grow up. That looks not that looks like no fun. Yeah. And I I think at least at this point, I think 
I think I've figured enough out that they're like, oh yeah, I'm excited to grow up. So I feel like, yay, (laughs) all that, all that shame was worth it. What I love about what you're saying, Julie, is, well, two things I was thinking about as I was listening is number one, I'm so, I am so grateful that your daughters had you as a model because what you're doing is you're breaking some generational trauma, right? That we as young women didn't necessarily have models and God bless our mothers and aunts and neighbors. They were doing the best they could, right? Totally, totally. And also they didn't give us much to either look forward to or to look towards to model healthy, vibrant, sassy womanhood. And alive. (laughs) Right. And I think what, what you're describing, you're giving not only to your own daughters, but to a population of women who I think are looking for mentors and role models of strong women who are trying to find their truths and come into themselves, even though it's like better late than never. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Can I um, share a couple of other things that, that stuck out with me yeah. or to me from this talk? Sure. It was never intended by the Lord that married women should compete with men in employment, which is so interesting because who's the actor in this, right? Like the job belongs to the man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like just the assumption that it's like, yeah. that is the man's thing and you're, you're, taking away something from a man. Like, I, I don't feel like I'm competing with my husband. Like we're working for the same goals. We're providing for our family. We're not competing. Right. It, to me, that really speaks of the insidiousness of patriarchy yeah. um, in the church, but in this talk as well. I mean, there, that, that piece, and there's one other, I want to, I want to actually going to take a note to myself so I don't forget it, but The supposition is that there is a place for a man, which is one up, and a place for a woman, which is one down. The man gets the marketplace, I think is the words he used, and the woman gets the home. But the interesting thing is, from a patriarchal and hierarchical perspective, is that while men gets the marketplace and woman gets the home in this model, men also gets the home because they're supposed to preside (laughs) And and do family home evening and do all of their priesthood leadership. And so in some ways, we've really been edged out of both arenas. And the the idea that we compete with them really has more to do, I think, with the fragility of men and the fear that Benson was having in 1987 around the feminist movement right, and around the ERA sure. and things like that. And then one other thing that what you said reminded me of that feels like it fits really well here is he uses, I can't, I'm not going to be able to find it here, but somewhere in this talk, he talks about the the righteous the most righteous of women will be the envy of all in the eternities and i thought to myself now that's interesting why would we want to be the envy of all in the eternities that to me has the flavor of creating heaven in the image of humanity i personally think that a lot of our our, our corporate structure is how do i say this that the atonement theory and other theology is really just based in like world politics and the way we Mm. see like the the court system and the law system and corporate system and things like that. And so the idea that there's envy to me is a very like patriarchal corporate 
way of looking at humanity where there's always got to be a hierarchy and we, yeah ranking right you're yes. going to be above everybody else if you exactly. do what i say you're going to be the best right and they're all going to be looking wishing they were you exactly is that a reward like right and i thought that is once again from my perspective that is coming from perhaps a well-meaning individual who is oh, totally. looking at eternities from the perspective of the male like the white male American who is in politics and he was a politician. Yeah. And so to right. be the envy of all means that you have uh, superiority or power over. And I was just laughing at that because I was thinking, you know, what? I, I don't, I don't personally aspire to be the envy of anybody. Like that doesn't even. Yeah. That's come... not appealing. No. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. That's so interesting. That that didn't even strike me, but I'm glad you brought that up. That wasn't yeah. one of the many that I highlighted. <laughs> right. There was a lot. What was your other one? So he's quoting President Kimball again. I beg of you, you who could and should be bearing and rearing a family. Wives, come home from the typewriter, the laundry, the nursing, come home from the factory, the cafe. So I want to I want to talk about the second half, but just right there. Yeah. It's not come home from the surgical center, come <laughs> home from the university, right? It's like, yeah, you can kind of see the perspective they're coming from is yeah. women are limited to these, these oh. things, right? The, the gender role stereotypes are just dripping off of the page here. The typewriter, yeah. because you can only be an assistant to the manager who the is secre male. secretary, <laughs> right? right? The laundry, because that's, women's work nursing the right. factor it's like like lower tier yeah. jobs right um and then he goes on no no career approaches in importance that of wife homemaker mother cooking meals washing dishes making beds for one's precious husband and children come home wives to your husbands make home a, ha a heaven for them come home wives to your children born and unborn Wrap your motherly cloak about you and unembarrassed help in a major role to create the bodies for the immortal souls who anxiously wait. So I would like to say, I do not make my bed, the bed for my husband or children. Yeah. I barely cook. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, they have, they have dishwashing duty. Like this is not how I define wifehood and motherhood at all. Right. Yeah. If it's a relationship. Yeah. What about learn how self-develop so you can have emotional intimacy with your partner? So, you know, like, it's like, do these tasks for them. Like, that is not how I define those relationships. So you, it just gives the historical context of where these quotes are coming from and what the, what the mindset is. So, so incredibly uh, gendered. So like the, the gender roles that are very like masculine men do this, feminine women do this. You didn't even mention this, but I really was uncomfortable with make home a heaven for them. This is all about being for someone else. And the thing that's so incredibly upsetting and tricky about this whole thing for me is that do we as women have the potential and capacity to be part of something that creates a heaven Yes, of course, but so do they. So does the partner. So do the children. It's what I'm experiencing in this particular part that you're talking about is you as a woman, 
don't have needs, wants, desires, passions. That is categorically wrong. You exist for the benefit of your partner and your children. You do these things to make life well for them. You provide and perform these things in the home so that your husband can come home and be cared for and taken care of. It's it's such a patriarchal hierarchical hierarch. I can't say that word right. Hierarch- hierarchical. That's the word. <laughs> um, I just was thinking to myself because motherhood doesn't need to be all of these things. And I think that's what makes me so sad about this is it's like motherhood is not what this is about. Right. It's not what this is about. And and what we could do, and I hope what we are doing, you and I and our you know cohort of women that are trying to become more healthy in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is we're saying embrace your motherhood if you choose how and when to be a mother. And yet all of these, this talk that we were raised on is a lot of prescriptions a lot of threats, a lot of fear, a lot of shame, and a lot of mandates about masculinity and femininity and roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And it just, in some ways, it has sort of soured a lot of us, I think, around like, we don't want to throw motherhood away, but I think we do have a fair amount of trauma around what we were told motherhood had to be. And it's just challenging, I think, to, and I think this is part of the work that I know I do in my practice, and I suspect you do too, is it's like we're trying to reorient people mm-hmm. to help them have a healthier relationship around motherhood because it, motherhood is not the problem here. That is not the problem right. at all. And and yet these talks, I think, did have, they did they did a lot of damage to us in our development because we didn't have the capacity. I, I, mean, I often think about like, what would what would motherhood have looked like with like a bit of a blank slate around? Like if right. we were born in another culture or time, maybe there's never a blank slate. Maybe we're there, always- There just, isn't. Yeah. <laughs> there's always a context. There's and, always a context. systems, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if it's something different that uh, didn't dictate to us in the way that this talked us how to be a mother, what would be different in our lives as women. Um, And I suspect maybe we're learning and growing because of the wounds that were exacted through our generation because of this talk. And so I guess for that, we can find some degree of gratitude. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's tricky, right? Well, I, I feel like these, these teachings are a lot of what I've been trying to undo for the past 30 years in my clients yep, and in my own life, right? And probably helped you end up where you are in the work you're doing. For sure. <laughs> it's like yeah. trying to undo the, the pain and the shame and the damage of um, not being supported in ex- exercising agency and trusting yourself and making informed decisions that are you can own. Right. And I think maybe, Julie, the two things that we can really think about is becoming healthier ourselves as women who are also mothers and as women who are not mothers, because I think this talk mm-hmm. did a fair degree of damage to those who never were mothers or yeah. in partnerships. So to get healthy ourselves, to heal from the damage, to heal from the trauma, to speak our pain, to support one another as women, mm-hmm. and then to and then to do as much as we can to not pass this on, yeah, to our children. 
and mm-hmm. to the younger generation uh, who are, you know, who, who are we we are either instilling in them and passing this on insidiously or we are wide awake and actively speaking up against no, that this is not this is not the way to move into this realm of your life. You claim motherhood or you don't claim mm-hmm. it. You be and do and experience your evolving adult life in a way that is best for you and to give them the messages that we wished we had received instead of what we are studying here today. Yeah. Amen. I That motivates pretty much everything I do professionally. Yeah. So you kind of summed it up really beautifully. Anything else you want to add as we close up? This has been a phenomenal, beautiful, sacred conversation. I've loved it. I, I want to add that these rigid gender roles hurt men. Patriarchy yeah. hurts men too. There is a talk to the men in Israel, to the fathers in Israel. That's kind of a partner talk. Mm-hmm. And it it talks about, you know, bread being the breadwinner. And like their men have their own pressures and kind of rigidity of and expectations that can stunt their personal choice and agency and growth. And so I just I think that's important to um to mention that it's not just women who suffer from rigid gender roles. You know, we all suffer. You're so right. And I feel like that's probably, we ought to just do a whole entire other episode on that. (laughs) How patriarchy hurts men. Yes. Yes. I, you really touch on it. That's, that's very alive in my mind right now, because I barely just finished bell hooks, book, the will to change, which all, which talks about the wounds of patriarchy on men. Mm. And it was very eye opening to me. And I actually saw a lot that we in the church could stand to learn from because one of the big pieces that she mentions in that in that book is that in patriarchal cultures women perpetuate the wounds of patriarchy onto their sons and i actually was reading that or listening to it and thinking oh my goodness i think we do that sometimes mm, we, yeah you know, and unwittingly not realizing it but but actually perpetuating some of the very wounds that we then come to resent one generation later when these men treat us this way. It's like, well, their mothers taught them that because right. we, we are all in a system that uh, is is a setup for relational struggles down the road b- because patriarchy hurts literally everyone, men and yeah. women. So I'm really glad, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it's, it's an important component to growing, recognizing that um, it's in these hierarchical systems, nobody uh, nobody in the end of the day wins. Yeah. And one other thing I want to say is that this is in no way uh, diminishing the value of motherhood. Motherhood is so valuable. Caregiving is valuable. It's important work and none of us would be here without it. <laughs> and it should be a choice it should be a conscious choice and the number and timing and all of those things are totally personal decisions. And it, this, I just don't want people to get the impression like, Oh, they hate motherhood. Cause I get, I get accused of that sometimes because I say it's a choice, right? Right. <laughs> How dare I, but motherhood is, is amazing. I love my family and they don't define me. Right. And I, I feel okay about that. You know, thank you, thank you. Yes, times one hundred. And I'll I'll just add to that, Julie. Not only do we 
love motherhood and honor motherhood and coincidentally both are mothers, mm-hmm. but we're speaking about this because we honor motherhood and it wounds our hearts that mothers are wounded by these kinds of teachings and theologies. If we didn't care about mothers and if we didn't love women yeah, and if we didn't really honor the responsibility or work of motherhood, we wouldn't be having these conversations because these kinds of things hurt women who choose to be mothers or who don't choose to be mothers. And so yeah. this is why it's a, it's kind of a, a little bit of a paradox. We right. have these hard conversations about these, these tricky topics around the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because we care, we want people to be healthy. We want them to come closer to what it means to be whole within themselves. And that's why we do this. Not because we hate it or disrespect it or don't want you know women to be mothers or don't like being mothers. It's nothing like that. It's the exact opposite. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Thank you. That was beautifully said. This has been so fun. I think we'll have to do this again. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. yeah. My soul sister, (laughs) we have a lot (laughs) of different paths, but a lot of similar, a lot of similarities in, in experiences. And thanks for taking the time to, to process this. It's felt really therapeutic and healing to revisit this and, and kind of hear your perspective. Actually, yes, it has been incredibly therapeutic for me. And I didn't realize how much this has impacted me until I had this chance to study it and to talk with you about it. And my my suspicion is that probably the people in our audiences that are listening to this are going to feel deeply impacted and resonant with a lot of the things that we're talking about. So maybe this is the beginning of, of many other podcasts to come where we can talk to women and men about how to become relationally healthy because we care so much about that. And I I think it's kind of ironic and kind of fun, Julie, that as women, as mothers, as Latter-day Saints, not only have we stepped into our own power, but we're doing this in a very bold and brave way. And I think our parents in heaven are pretty proud of you and me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I think you're doing amazing work, Valerie. And I, yeah, I just really admire you, which is why I reached out to you and and wanted to connect. So thank you for taking the time with me today. Likewise. Thank you all for being here today with me and Julie. And we appreciate all of those of you who listen to this and who share this podcast far and wide so that other people can know that they are not alone in what they're working through and in their growth process here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So take care, y'all, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, friends. Have you ever thought of working with me as your personal coach? Well, I have a couple of openings for women in Utah or virtually all across the globe, and I would love to work with you. I'm a licensed therapist, and I've been specializing in women's emotional health and relationships for nearly 30 years, and I've transitioned to doing personal coaching. I love it, and I'm excited to work with you. I help women making career and life decisions, communication training, moving on after children have moved out of the home or after divorce, finding your passion in life, or creating partnership in your marriage and family. I also work a lot with faith transitions and mixed faith marriages. I'm confident that I can help you create the life you love. I can't wait to work with you. And you can use code 150OFF for $150 off priority coaching with me. Go to drjuliehanks.com slash coaching. 
or email hello at drjuliehanks.com for more information. Again, that code is 150, so 150 off OFF. talk to Dr. Julie Hanks about this question. Well, now's your chance. I want to have you on my podcast. So email hello at drjuliehanks.com with your question and the reason why you want to be on the podcast. And we may just choose you for a free coaching session.